and welcome to On The Ledge podcast, Diva Week Part 3. And I am very glad that today we are talking about the maiden hair fern. And I'm joined by Matthew of the Plant Daddy podcast to find out some expert tips on how to make this plant happy. Now, the maiden hair fern, well, there's a number of species that come under this common name. The one that's probably most associated with the name is the Delta Maiden Hair Firm, Adiantum radianum. But there are a few others, as Matthew will reveal in this episode. But their common characteristic is those very fine leaves, like tracing paper, which crumble and crisp at the very slightest sign of conditions they're not happy with. So this is the challenge you are set, how to take care of this beautiful but slightly fragile plant. I am terrible with ferns, Matthew. Yeah, I am trying and I think I'm making some progress, but they are not easy plants indoors. Well, I think it's one of these things where it just depends on your style of care. And I think if you're yeah. one of these people who can offer certain things, then then maybe it's easier. But the maidenhair fern seems to be one of those things that I've, in my earlier in my houseplant career, I've kind of bought and thought, oh, look, it's five pounds, this beautiful, mm-hmm. airy, fairy thing. And then, I've, you know, it's just gone downhill so fast. And then it doesn't help that on Instagram, I keep seeing these amazing, amazing maidenhair ferns that are the size of a planet. And yeah. Why? Why? So <laughs> I'm hoping, Matthew, that you can give me a few a few tips that okay. might not necessarily lure me back into growing this plant, but might help some listeners who are feeling a bit sad because their maiden hair is just We'll see what we can do to help crispy. them. <laughs> <laughs> so what I, I guess the first thing to say is that the leaves of this plant are so paper thin. How does that impact on care in terms of I'm guessing that means very high humidity is required. Yeah, what I have found is that with those really, really light, thin uh, leaves, any amount of drying in the soil that's beyond what the plant wants will just result in the plant drying up and shedding those leaves. I try to keep my indoor humidity like around 50 to 60% as a goal. Um, it often goes down to about 40 when the weather is warm and sunny. Uh, but the number one thing that I found that helps prevent that is making sure that you are watering appropriately. I think that humidity gets a little bit overplayed and how important it is for healthy foliage uh, when really it's the amount of water that the roots have and the appropriate substrate so that they can make use of it without the roots having any kind of stagnation and, and rot set in. That's kind of where I found this sweet spot of success with these. That's a really interesting point. I think that's very true. And uh, yeah, the, the water around the roots has a lot, uh, a lot more to do with it. I do remember the famous English gardener, Monty Don, did a thing on houseplants in the very popular TV show Gardener's World here a while ago and mm. I don't really watch that show which is a bit of a shock horror thing to some people but <laughs> you know there you go um I don't really do gardening TV but anyway when I was watching it I did watch this episode on houseplants and he was saying that he's missed his maiden hair fern like eight times a day and I'm thinking wow I don't think I have time or that that's kind of setting up a care regime that sounds pretty intense that I'm not sure I'd be able to maintain (laughs) so I'm glad to hear there's another answer 
It's kind of the same reason that I don't really grow a lot of things like under glass or in terrariums as a temporary thing. If I'm going to ever put something in that high of a humidity environment to kind of acclimate and look nicer, it just needs to stay there because I don't want to have to try to get it back out into my typical, you know, open air houseplant world. But I do set my my maidenhair fern grouped closely with other plants. It's always kind of in combination with uh, like orchids and aeroids and stuff like that that kind of want similar light, that want similar amounts of ambient humidity. And because I water them fairly regularly, it's easy to keep the maidenhair as watered as necessary. But just having that little microclimate together is really a fantastic way to kind of give the plant as much of a boost as as you can that's still realistic for just general house plant life. Terracotta or plastic? What is the best thing to put these pots in? Bearing in mind that uh, obviously if you've got terracotta, it's going to be, it's porous, it's going to be evaporating more. So I guess you're going to have to water a bit more. Yeah. So I think that um, I'll, a lot of my interest in maidenhair ferns in general comes from growing up in an area where there's a lot of them that live just in the woods around here. So uh, you'll often find them growing along stream sides or waterfalls. And sometimes they're even kind of like on, on ledges where there's very little substrate at all, but they're getting a lot of water. So seeing them grow that way, it kind of changed how I thought about them in terms of pots. I don't think that the pot itself is terribly important. Conventional wisdom is going to tell you, use plastic, use a glazed uh, clay pot to help retain some of that water. But I think that you could get away with using a terracotta pot. What I think is critical, however, is that it should always be sitting in water. And I think that the substrate is important. It should be light and airy, and there should be a lot of um, kind of, moisture retaining stuff like sphagnum moss but i i also make sure that it has really good drainage so that i can just set my maidenhair in kind of a deep saucer with a few inches of water sometimes and just with capillary action the medium stays lightly moist it's never like soggy and saturated except for at the bottom that's that's in water in fact for that i might even just have you know two inches in the bottom of the pot with either leca pellets or horticultural charcoal so that the media itself stays above the water level but it just draws the right amount of liquid up into the potting substrate so that the fern roots can kind of venture down as much as they want i have found that there is no leeway in the amount of dry that you can achieve i think that the worst uh, looking ferns that I've grown are ones that I've gotten sloppy about how much water I'm I'm keeping the saucer full of. And if it dries for a weekend, the fern tells me by wilting and shedding like crispy brown fronds. So they really do like a lot of water. And one of our uh, Instagram friends who uh, is based in Australia, they're growing a maidenhair fern literally in a goldfish bowl. Like it's, it's, sitting in water almost as though it's like a marginal pond plant and i've been really surprised kind of keeping up over the last few months with the success of their fern and i think that this is really one that wants and needs a lot of water and that's going to be much more important than than the pot material itself and if you do make a terrible error and let that plant dry out will it come back from the rhizomes if you correct the conditions or or is it done for 
you know, they are fairly hardy and a lot of them are, well, a lot of the temperate ones anyway, are, are even deciduous. So they are pretty good at being able to come back from that rhizome. It's kind of like a thick clump. It doesn't form kind of those long stolons that you see in other ferns sometimes. Uh, and if my, if my plant just looks really terrible, I'll just prune most or all of the foliage off. And then that's the only time that I might kind of boost its humidity for a little while to help it recover. But as soon as I see new fresh fronds growing out, which happens pretty quickly within a matter of, of days or weeks, um, depending on kind of the warmth and humidity of your space, you just want to make sure that you don't give them too much sun at that point, but they come back nicely. It can take a while to get a beautiful, thick, full plant again, but if it's one that you're particularly attached to and don't want to replace outright, you can usually start over. Just make sure that you haven't let it approach bone dry because it's probably going to die at that point. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yes, yeah. I've, I've been there with, uh, with that. And it, are there any particular pests that like to have a nibble on the old maiden hair fern? So I, there are uh, various pests that are going to bother them. I think that the ones that I've seen have been mealybugs and aphids, especially on, on the new foliage. But to me, this isn't one of the more pest-prone house plants. I think that it tends to grow enough new foliage quickly enough that if you do notice any pests, you can pretty easily remove the affected parts. Um, they're pretty sensitive to sprays and chemicals. I would never use neem oil on one of these. So I am just kind of cresting my fingers and hoping that I never get a bad infestation, but so <laughs> far so good. And I think that they're, they're fairly hardy and resilient in that re regard. Now I've, I've said on the show before that I've never used neem oil because it's not like, you know, here it's not something that is, you can't, you're not really allowed to use it as a pesticide here. Um, mm. And it does, I mean, you know, I'm not, I, I, so I don't have any direct experience of how it works and I'm sure it does work, but I, it does seem, it does concern me sometimes that people seem to be, because it's a, in inverted commas, natural substance, people seem to be like literally spraying it or sloshing it around quite uh, carelessly, uh, neem oil. Yeah. You have to be a little bit careful with it, I, one would presume, and also be careful about dilution rates and so on, with, particularly with those kind of tender leaves, as you say. I actually really don't love neem oil myself. It's very popular here in the States as just like a general uh, pesticide, fungicide, miticide. But it's, it's really important to read the instructions on the packaging because the dilution rate needs to be at a level that's not going to harm the plant. And some plants are very sensitive to it, like hibiscus or ferns, uh, some roses even. Like there's, there's a lot of plants that do really, really well, but there are some outliers. I think that the real key to using neem oil successfully, though, is that you use the correct dilution rate and you use it consistently because it's not an outright pesticide that's going to just kill everything that it touches. Instead, it kind of weakens the adult's and the eggs, the larvae, it kind of keeps them from having strong reproductive fitness, which then means that they'll diminish over time. But if you use it here and there, kind of like a spot treatment, it's really not going to give you what you want. And you're just using a natural chemical in your home kind of to no effect. So I, I would be much more inclined to use like a 
a strong spray of water to help dislodge, knock pests off, maybe an insecticidal soap spray like with Castile soap, something that's a little bit uh, maybe harder on the pests at first, a little bit less frequent reapplication necessary. Um, the, the, main, the main thing I think is, that is your main weapon against pests. Oh, my dog's having a dream here. He's just wishing oh. away here. Your main weapon against pests is what we call here in the UK, and I'm sure you have this phrase too, elbow grease. So you've got to work at yeah. it. You've got to be persistent. You've got to keep checking, keep checking, keep spraying, keep spraying. You know, not necessarily, as you say, just a spray of water I'm talking about as opposed to some kind of pesticide. And, yeah. and that way, eventually, you will you will get rid of them. But it's it's this idea that you kind of, it's a one one-time deal, you spray something and it's gone, that I think is where lots of people fall down. Yeah, I think that the truth of the matter is when you have a high plant density inside, you're literally just recreating a biome. And it has all the plant species that you bring in, along with whatever pests might happen to be lurking, hiding, that might come in and find them. And because this is living ecology in your own home, it's important to kind of have constant vigilance to make sure that nothing gets out of control. You wouldn't let just one plant overgrow all of the rest of yours. So I think you should think about like mites or scale or mealybugs, like all of those things. They're living parts of your biological ecosystem, but you're going to have to just continually monitor them. Um, I, I think that one of the coolest means of pest control that I have used is I just sometimes let ladybugs free in my apartment and, you know, uh, lace flies, um, are, are another that we use for biological pest control. And I'm really interested in getting some of the eggs so that I can put them throughout my plants. See if using like actual insects that are going to just live within my, my house plants helps me to kind of just keep things down without my having to be quite so involved. I'm still going to be monitoring, looking at things, checking for pests, but I'm hoping that I can see some improvement in using some beneficial insects indoors uh, just to help balance this this ecology that I've developed. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, I think that's very, very sensible. And, uh, you know, don't freak out when you see one pest because you've seen it, you've spotted it, and that, now you can deal with it. And it's not, a you know, everything everything happens for a reason <laughs> exactly know? yeah otherwise there wouldn't be anything for all the birds i mean i'm at the moment there's lots of birds nesting around in my garden i'm just thinking gosh you know if you were gardening in a very harsh way there really wouldn't be a lot for those birds to actually feed on that's they're relying on there being lots of little caterpillars and stuff around for the for their babies so yeah i mean obviously that doesn't apply indoors but it's all, it's the same principle, isn't it? That, that, yeah, you know, exactly. If you try to recreate the outside, you recreate all elements of outside, which includes it, which includes uh, the insect world. So uh, yeah, uh, we've, we've slightly gone off maiden headphones, but getting back on track, um, yes. what a light, what, what, what's the deal with light? Is, are they a sort of a, a north facing windowsill type deal or is it more complicated than that? They do tend to like fairly bright light, but just as you've uh, pointed out, they have such thin leaves, they obviously burn very easily. So I, I do grow some of these outdoors on my balcony, some of the hardy species that are either native here or can tolerate our winters. And some of them are growing um, in almost unobstructed east light on a balcony where they get a lot of morning sun, but then the sun is passed by the time that the sun is like properly warm and, and hot and everything. So 
they're they're really quite adaptable. But indoors, I have the ones that that I'm growing under grow lights. So these are LED lights. They can actually produce a lot more light without all of the heat. So they're probably getting some of the higher light that they can tolerate and they're totally fine. They look great, but it's also a plant that's going to thrive really well if it just has consistent bright ambient light on, you know, north uh, hemisphere, north windowsills, southern hemisphere, south windowsills. I would even group them on um, like east windows that have some shading from other plants. I would really worry though about getting some of that hot afternoon, late in the day sun. That's where it's going to be too intense for them. This is not really a shade plant. Outdoor shade is quite different from indoor kind of dim growing conditions. So treat this kind of the way that you would like a calathea. And I think that you're going to find some success with, with new growth, especially. Awesome. Have we covered everything that we need to talk about with this plant? I guess we haven't mentioned feeding. I'm guessing that there's no, no magic tricks here other than just feed it a little bit during the growing season and don't overdo it. Yeah. And I think the only other thing that I'll mention here is that I tend to use a pretty rich uh, potting substrate. Like it'll have a lot of perlite, pumice, horticultural charcoal, sphagnum moss, and actual like compost and kind of like leaf detritus, uh, like mulch. And that helps to kind of mimic its its natural uh, root environment in its ecosystem. Um, some of the really cool species, if you don't mind me pointing them out. Yeah, do. Yeah, so one of my favorites is Adiantum hispidulum. And this one is great because it has these kind of palmate looking leaves that the new ones grow in this really beautiful kind of pink bronze color and then they mature to green. It's one of the nicer kind of overall appearances that I've seen on these ferns. Uh, they're fairly easy to find, at least here in the States. I also really like the rosy maidenhair fern, which is one of the cultivars of Adiantum tenorum. And it has the similar pink growth, but it's more of like that light, fluffy kind of uh, uh, formless appearance that you see on some of the more common ones. Mm -hmm. And then I think that the coolest one is actually Adiantum peruvianum. And that one has huge leaflets on these black, wiry, very airy looking fronds. So those are kind of the three species that are my favorite for indoors. And I think that they kind of elevate the maiden hair appearance a little bit. So if you want to grow several different kinds, it's beautiful to have all these different textures and the different colors of the different ages of growth blending in together. I think that they make a really beautiful mass planting if you're doing like a really crazy fern moment. Well, I'm going to have to stop you there, Matthew, because you, before long, you're going to get me wanting maidenhair ferns again. And that cannot happen for my sanity and for the sanity of my family. But thank well, you for those yes. brilliant tips. These um, are divas and you will have some struggle with them, but it is very worthwhile, I think. Uh, for those hardier members of uh, the, the listening clan who, who want to take up this challenge, I'm sure that that advice that you've given will give them much to work on. So thank you very much, Matthew. Absolutely. May your maiden hairs continue to put out those beautiful papery leaflets for many years to come. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks 
Mr. Matthew, and if you haven't checked out the Plant Daddy podcast yet, well, why the heck not? Because it's rather excellent. I highly recommend. Go and have a listen. They've just done their 50th episode. And do check out my show notes at janeperone.com for a list of Matthew's care tips for maidenhair ferns and the species he mentions. And I'll be back tomorrow with part four on Begonia maculata whitei. Can't wait. Bye. The music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops and Whistle by Benjamin Banger. Both tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. See janeperone.com for details. Thank you.